When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. Today I'm talking to four-time Emmy award-winning journalist and anchor extraordinaire Mara S. Compo. And this episode really just started with a text she sent me. But before I give too much away, let's just get into it. Mara Escompo. Thank you very Welcome much. to Money Rehab. Thank you. It's good to be here. So last time I was in New York, I reached out to Hang. You were traveling at the time, but you sent me the best text ever about your, quote, financial makeover. You said, I didn't even know the interest rates for my cards. Now I have a spreadsheet detailing every penny. Mara, tell me everything. Okay, so I have you to thank for this oh. in large part. So backstory, very quick summary, COVID like was really hard on my husband and I financially because we've really invested heavily in real estate. We have four rental properties and we're in New York City. And so we intentionally didn't have people on really long-term restrictive leases because like if people want to go, they should be able to go. And you can always find another tenant in New York. So that was kind of our thing for like 15 years. COVID hits, we lose three out of four tenants. Oof. We were looking to rent apartments at the height of COVID. I'm talking about spring of 2020 in New York City. Yeah. So we had to accept these like super low rents. Then, you know, turning an apartment over is a ton of money because you have to, you know, get it ready for the next tenant, especially if the previous tenant's been there a long time. And then tenants were really smart. So they asked to be locked into these low rents for a period of time. And we basically had to say yes to everything. And then our one remaining tenant asked for a price match because he saw the other units, you know, on the market. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so we're like, okay. He was listening so, to Money Rehab. Yeah, exactly. So all that to say, that was incredibly difficult for us. And then we had an arm. 
which we were prepared for, but we weren't prepared for it in the age of COVID, where now we're getting 30% lower rents. We're locked into these long-term low rent leases. We had to spend all this money returning security deposits and turning apartments around. And then interest rates start going up and up and up and up. It was just this perfect storm of us getting screwed financially. So I remember going through our household expenses and getting rid of like, okay, I'm going to get rid of the Discovery app because, you know, it's $7 a month. Okay, let's get rid of that. Okay, I'm going to get rid of, oh, Jim. Okay, we can do Blink. That's $10 a month. We'll just do that. <laughs> and then it was like, I heard your voice. <laughs> I remember oh. you saying something about coffee. Like, you know, all these financial analysts tell you, oh, don't drink your coffee. That's $3 a day. Mm-hmm. And you would always be like, no, have your coffee because like there's other things you can do financially that will set you up better. And it was like, I heard your voice. And I was like, Mara, this is not a $5 a month problem. <laughs> yes. Many thousands of dollars a month problem. So keep your discovery subscription and figure out how to fix this. And that's when I just got serious about it, about knowing every single detail of our finances. And once it's in black and white, it's actually pretty obvious. I'm so proud. <laughs> My heart is bursting. <laughs> Okay, so you put it down on paper because I think oftentimes we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And so we think it's going to be this big, scary monster. And maybe you thought that. You tell me. It was. It was a terrifying monster. And it took about a year to dig out of it. It was bad. I mean, we were losing money every month. So you put it all down. You tried to see what the rates were. An arm, just for anyone who might not know, is adjustable rate mortgage. And so You know, they go up as interest rates go up, which was happening as inflation was kicking in. So you put down what on this spreadsheet? So it was everything, all of our debt, and it was organized by the amount we owed and the interest rates on it so that I could at least see where it made sense to direct money and where I could transfer debt Mm. to something with a lower interest rate. So close those higher interest rate things and where I might need to negotiate. And the one that was clear needed to be renegotiated was the mortgage on the income property. It was just too big of a problem to manage long-term. I hate asking for financial help. Like I've been independent on my own since I was 24 years old. My parents did give us a deposit for a house. I want to be frank about that because that's a huge advantage to start life with. But other than that, I have not taken money from anyone since I was 21 years old. So it never even occurred to me to ask for help. But we didn't ask for help during COVID when we weren't getting rent Mm. and they had all these relief programs like we didn't take advantage of any of it. So I reached out to the bank. You know, they have these loan mitigation programs and I was very specific about what I wanted. I wanted the lower interest rate that we had had previously. I wanted it locked in for a period of time so that we could recover from all of these hits. And they agreed. Yes. I'm at a three, five interest rate for a period of time, which like is unreal right now. Like now rates are 7%. Well, you texted me and you said that this money stuff just finally clicked. So I talked to a lot of people, of course, who are trying so hard to have that aha moment. You know, what made this click for you? What stars had to align before it felt like you could pick up that phone and ask for a lower rate or even know that that was possible? I didn't realize how much of my financial decisions were based on emotion and preconceived notions that were not supported by the numbers. Mm. When I started looking at it strictly as a numbers game, like you have to take your, like I'm talking to myself now, like Mara, you have to take your emotion out of this. You have to put these numbers on paper. You have to face the reality. And then you have to put a plan in place to address it. Because even my husband was so stressed, he couldn't look at the numbers. 
I mean, you're talking about your family's livelihood. Like that's how yeah. stressful it was. And I just knew that wasn't going to solve the problem. Like you can't put your head in the sand because we were, we were using our retirement money to stem the, you know, the bleed. And so once I put everything on paper and I started really looking at it as like a numbers game, like it just made so much sense. Like, you know, in the matrix, when everything came together for Neo. <laughs> How it felt. And then I had this moment and I said this to my husband who works in financial, he's worked in financial industry for you know almost 20 years. And I said to him like, wait, so basically this is all like gambling. And he's like, yeah, people are making guesses about what they hope will perform well. And sometimes you make money and sometimes you lose money. And so you can gamble with less risk or you can put something somewhere really, really safe. You know, so I just started learning all of this stuff strictly from a numbers perspective. Like, how's my money going to make me the most money? Where am I bleeding that I can stop the bleed? Where can I transfer? And that solved the problem. I mean, we transferred a lot. We did a lot of consolidation and transfer. So we took out a home equity line of credit on our house with an introductory rate of 2.5%. We put all of our credit card debt on that credit card debt that was at 20, 25%. Mm-hmm. Now it's 2.5%. So we're actually paying down the principal as opposed to just, you know, throwing money away on yes. interest fees. My credit is through the roof. It's 808. Like I'm on top of the Excuse world. Me, Mrs. Like, like I told you lunch on me when we see each other. (laughs) I am so, so proud. So let's double click on that part where you said before this, there was a lot of emotion. What were some of those previous emotions? So the big one was the idea that real estate is the smartest investment. I never challenged that idea and I never thought it through. And I remember again, you saying you may want to chase people for rent as an investment, but I would rather not have to work so hard for my money. And when I thought about it, I realized, A, being a landlord is a job. Yep. It's not like you park your money in something and it's getting like compound interest. Like this is work all the time. So then I put those numbers down. How much has it appreciated? What's the rent roll? What are our expenses? And then I realized that I could make the same return on something with far less work. So we are now looking to get out of a lot of the real estate that we're in, Wow! especially in a home, you know, we own a brownstone. So a lot of our money is going into maintaining the building. So I was like, hmm, if we invested in condos, we wouldn't have that expense. We would be getting rent and we would just be paying the mortgage. So that's an example of something that I just always believed was true. Real estate's just going to go up, up, up. You'll get this huge return on your investment and you'll get dividends essentially in the form of passive income in the process. And that just wasn't the case for us. It's costing us too much money. Maintenance is too high. And stress, I'm sure. Stress, yes. People are calling you and they have like (laughs) plumbing problems and whatever else. Yes, You know, it drives me crazy, honestly, when people say, well, you know, it's just throwing money away when you're renting. Like you never get it back. It's like, oh, hold on. Do you get interest payments back? Because last time I checked, you don't. And people are like, well, why would you just go and, and give the money to a landlord to pay their own mortgage? It's like, well, if you go to a restaurant, you don't complain that you're just paying the landlord's rent for that restaurant. You just had a nice meal. Like you just lived in a place. That was a thing that is a cost of living. And you don't have to necessarily get that back. And it's not as easy as like passive mailbox money just magically showing up for literally doing nothing. I think that there's this huge misconception. So what part of that started resonating with you when you crunched the numbers? What did you see? Were you making any money at all? Yeah, so we are making money, but we could be making the same money 
in other investment vehicles with none of the work and none of the stress and none of the, you know, heating oil wasn't delivered and it's the middle of February and the tenants are freezing and we have to address it right now, right. which is stressful for me personally. Like that's somebody's home, you know, like I don't want anybody suffering. So I just realized that the things that I always assumed weren't necessarily true and that I could challenge them mm. and learn more and just try to make the smartest decisions. Like I did an exercise where I like put in a hypothetical sales number for our house and then, you know, capital gains, everything, like what we would get when we sold everything and put it in a compound interest calculator, at like a very modest rate that far outpaced the appreciation on the home. So it was just so obvious, like this is not a long-term investment that makes sense for us as much as I thought it did, mm. but there are other ways. What are those other ways? And approximately, if you don't mind sharing, like how much were you finding you would actually be getting? What did you think you would be getting? What did you find when you crunched the numbers that you would be getting? And where else could you be getting that? For most of my life, I was very retro in the sense that like I let my dad and my husband manage the money. And I was just kind of like, you know, it embarrasses me to say that because I'm a professional. I think of myself as like a smart woman. But when it came to money, it was just like, oh, let the boys take care of it. And so I had this idea in my mind that whenever we decided to sell the house, it was just going to be like, you know, Daddy Warbucks came and dumped a pile of money on us because we had bought it, you know, in 2004 and you hold on to something long enough, it's going to make you a ton of money. But when I actually looked at the numbers, it just wasn't what I always assumed it would be. I had this idea that it was a pot of gold. Mm. And then it's like, no, there's capital gains taxes that you have to pay. If you did renovations, those depreciate over time. They're like a lot of money that comes out. It just wasn't what I thought it was. And so that was really helpful because I like the idea of real estate, especially as a Black person. Homeownership historically is something there's been a barrier of entry for Black people. And so I, I like that, the idea of real estate still. But the way we're doing it doesn't financially make sense. Like we have a building with heating oil. Heating oil is $10,000 a year. Yeah. You know, we're tied to like energy prices. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so glad that we're having this conversation for a thousand reasons, but also because there is this idea and I hear it all the time from folks that they're just going to get these income properties and that that's going to be their ticket to wealth. Where did you first learn that? When did you just assume that that was going to be your ticket to daddy, mama, Warbucks, like later on in life? Where do you think that came from? It came from my parents because my parents did that. My parents always had an income property and they would be different over time. But I remember many times them buying something new and we'd go like, look at it in different stages. Like, you know, most things had to be fixed up or something needed a gut reno in DC in the eighties. And so they made like three apartments out of it. So it just seemed like this, not only an investment, but a really cool investment because like, if you're a creative person, you really like designing spaces, designing homes is really rewarding. Like just thinking about how people are going to use the space. And so there's something more and fuzzy about that. And, you know, that paired with the idea that it was just going to be rent, you know, raining down on me every month. And then whenever we sold it, it was going to be all this accumulated home value. And I wanted to buy more. Like if you would have asked me five years ago, I'd be like, oh, and you know, we want to own six brownstones. I just had this idea that I never challenged. Okay. I mean, what was your relationship like growing up in your home with money? 
I mean, speaking for myself, I can just say I had a lot of bad habits around money from the crap I saw when I was growing up. And there was a moment for me, too, where I was like, OK, just because it was done a certain way doesn't mean it's the way it needs to be done. Like when I became vegetarian, I was like, yes, my family ate meat or my family. We grew up Jewish. And then I asked myself, self, do I want to eat meat or self? <laughs> do I want to be Jewish? And like, you know, there's a moment where, by the way, I could say yes. Like I did want to be Jewish or, you know, whatever. I could have said yes. I I like meat, but you you have to question like the way it's always been done. Yeah. At some point, I think everybody does. Yeah, you know, I had this thing, and I would almost like brag about it. Where like I didn't care about money. It's not that I didn't value it. Like I understood the value of a dollar, but it wasn't gonna like make me. It wasn't gonna bring me joy. Material things were not my focus. I, I saw that as a virtue, right? And so because. I perceive to be a virtue that I don't really care about money, then worrying about it and working to grow it was kind of in conflict with that. And it's not that my family was wealthy, but I mean, they we didn't have to worry about things. You know, we went on vacation, food on the table, you know, back to school shopping. It was like those things were always there. I just didn't ever worry about money or think about it. It was almost like this idea of like, oh, well, the universe will provide, you know, which is great. Faith is amazing. But I think faith and works is really like, you know, the magic ticket. But when I lost my parents, I learned something really interesting that I did not know. I always viewed them as a safety net. I never used that safety net. I had borrowed money from them over the years, but paid it back in full within a year with interest every time. It was so important to me to be financially independent. But in the back of my mind, I always knew if something happened, I could go home. That me and my kids and my husband, we could go there and we would be taken care of. So when I lost them, I realized that because all of a sudden I was like, no, no, it's all on you now forever. And for your kids too, maybe you don't value material things, but you better get your shit together because your family is counting on you, whatever you have to make sure it lasts until the day you die and you have something to leave them. And that just gave it a lot more weight. Yeah. And when did you realize that focusing on the small things wasn't going to ultimately help. You know, you said you refinance for better rates, closed accounts, you know, raised rents to align with market value and all of that stuff. So of all those changes, what do you think had the biggest impact? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the discovery app. Right. The, it was not. <laughs> the gym, right? Allow yourself small indulgences. Yeah. My take around that has always been like, give yourself small indulgences. What you're paying in interest is what you should care about the most because that is the biggest 100%. chunk of change. Yes. The biggest difference by far was opening a HELOC on our primary residence. Got a really incredible rate, 2.5% for a year. After that, it's prime for the life of the HELOC taking all of our credit card debt, consolidating it and putting it on that HELOC. So we went from things that were 20, 25% interest rate to now paying 2.5% and we're paying it down. We have a plan to be at zero, hopefully soon. So that was a huge one. And then the arm was huge because the interest rates, they were just destroying us, you know? And it's like every time the Fed would like want to cry, like I would lay awake at night, like so stressed because that's like real money. Like I would know that like our next payment now is going to be maybe $500 more on certain things because the Fed is meeting tomorrow. It's just so incredibly stressful. So I just wanted to remove myself as much as possible from anything tied to interest rates. Yes, I love that because the interest rates is what's going to get you. And also your credit score where I say, 
stop focusing on the latte, get your credit score up because the higher your credit score is for anyone who doesn't realize the connection, the lower your interest rates are going to be. Not everybody has the same interest rates. Like if we look at our credit cards, which often we don't sit around and say, hey, Mara, what's the APR on your credit card? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's not the same for everybody. It's all connected to your credit score. It's like your financial report card. Okay. And then when did you find that confidence to call the bank up? I'm a problem solver and I'm a mama bear. So like for me, it really was about my kids. It's like, I got to protect what we have because I got to leave them something. I'm kind of like, I won't take no for an answer. So I actually had not heard back from them. And I kept following up and kept following up and kept following up. Didn't hear anything for months. So then I hit them up on Twitter. And I was like, hey, guys, do you have a contact that I can reach out to? And then somebody emailed me like a day later and said, oh, we're so sorry. And I believe that they're probably overwhelmed with these kinds of requests because look at interest rates. And they were fantastic once we were actually in contact. You know, they really wanted to help us work through this. And again, I like to your point, I think having good credit helps a lot because it's like, okay, well, these people pay their bills on time. They've never missed a payment with us. Like clearly there's something going on. And they asked for everything. Like my gynecologist knows less about me than this bank. Like they (laughs) wanted like spreadsheets on our household expenses and all of our bank statements for months going back. And we had to say like any deposit of more than $500, like what's the source of that? And like, it was intense, but it's like, okay, we'll do what we got to do to try to make this work. Financial colonoscopy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money Rehabbers, I got to tell you, I just got back from Industrious and I am obsessed. Industrious is a company that provides co-working spaces and flexible office solutions for modern businesses, entrepreneurs, and remote employees who don't just want to work from the bedroom. I live in LA, as you know, and I travel a ton. And when I do, I always worry about finding a good place to work with a strong Wi-Fi connection and a legit desk situation. Industrious has a ton of different locations in major cities, so it really gives me the peace of mind that I have a home away from home when it comes to getting stuff done. But when I am at home, I love the Westwood locations, floor to ceiling windows. It just makes you feel like you're on top of the world, which is definitely the vibe you want when you're trying to take over the world. I also love the telephone booths they have that allow you to take private calls there. But also if you have a Zoom, there's a ring light because Zooms are always better that way. We know this. Go to industriousoffice.com, click join now and use the code MONEYREHAB to redeem a whole free week of co-working when you take a tour. A whole free week. Free. It's my favorite price. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. 
So switching gears a little bit, you do a lot of reporting on the racial wealth gap and supporting black businesses. Mm. You are my hero. Mm. So as an award-winning journalist and someone who went through a money makeover yourself, where can we make real progress on closing the racial wealth gap? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something we're actually at Revolt, we're looking at doing a lot around that for Juneteenth, because, you know, the wealth gap is a really big thing. And the wealth gap, I don't know that a lot of people are aware that it's comprised of so many different things, right? It's comprised of income. So there's the wage gap, which is greater for Black women and men and, you know, women of color in general compared to white men. So first there's wages, then there's home ownership. So there's a gap in home ownership. There's a gap in assets that are like investable assets in cash on hand, like liquid assets. There's a gap in every single indicator of wealth. So there's a lot to tackle. I think financial literacy is huge. Like I was never taught about money and my father's white. So this is not a race thing. And he's also an economist, but like, I don't know that a lot of families talk about money in general, but I know Black families specifically, I think we can do better with financial literacy. I think culturally, again, we talk about ideas that are never challenged. You know, a lot of people think that the way to wealth is by becoming an athlete or a rapper. But first of all, your odds of making it there are so, so small. And then even if you make it like to the NFL, the average career is like four years. Like what are you going to do after that? So I don't think there are enough conversations in the community about these things. There are many other paths to financial stability. And then leaving something to your kids. I think that's a huge part of the wealth gap is inheritance. You know, I remember my daughter asking me once, cause she's very interested in money. I'm gonna send her your way one of these days. Yes. She's like obsessed. <laughs> Rich bitch in the making. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She is born an entrepreneur. And she asked me, how do the richest people make their money? And I didn't know the answer. So we Googled it. And I was surprised to learn that the single biggest source of wealth for the richest people in the country is inheritance. Mm. Like the idea of the self-made millionaire, of course, Mm -hmm. the millionaires, billionaires, they exist. But the richest people in the country, most of them got their money through an inheritance because that's how wealth is accumulated over generations and generations. What did she say to that? She was like, well, mom. Well, you know, she was a little disappointed because I think she wanted to know how you make money. How do you get rich? But it was eye-opening that like, we're not starting from the same playing field, you know, like there are people who were starting like way ahead of the game because of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. But then we looked at self-made people. And that was interesting because like Oprah, of course, is on the list. I'm like, you know, she's, you know, she's a journalist and a black woman. I was very happy about that. Like Kim Kardashian was on the list. So we were able to, most of them were entertainers. Then there were some business people. So that just gave her a sense of what types of industries make money. Yeah. And, you know, part of the racial wealth gap includes the investing gap, right? So you broke that down into several buckets because each one you can zoom in and say, well, why is there this investing gap? I mean, there's a general investing gap for women, too. Now that the pay gap has narrowed slightly, there's this investing gap where just all of women's money is like sitting in our checking accounts. But they're also connected, you know, so if you have a wage gap, And as a black woman, I think we make 58 cents on the dollar to white men. Then how much money do you have left over to invest? 
if you're making so much less, now I got to save and invest too when I'm just trying to get by on 58 cents on the dollar. So it's all tied. You know, if home ownership was restricted for our grandparents and great grandparents, which we know it was, the federal government was not backing loans for black neighborhoods. This was federal policy. You could not get a loan in certain neighborhoods, whereas people in white communities could get a loan. How are you going to buy a house with all cash? So if you haven't had a home appreciator passed down to your family for generations and you can't pull equity out of that, like where's the money for investing coming from? Mm -hmm. So it's all connected. Yeah. And when you guys did the math for how much you were getting from these investment properties, did you find that investing in the stock market or other kinds of investments would yield you more? Yes, but like I'm now I'm kind of risk averse, whereas in the past I've just been kind of like takes money to make money, you know, like a little more reckless. But now, like I said, you know, I'm really concerned about my kids and their future. So I, when I did the compound interest calculator, it was like five or six percent, which I mean, you tell me, I think that's pretty modest of a return. But that's based on if we just sold it, took everything that, you know, after taxes, after everything, took that money and put it in something low risk. I found it was going to outpace the appreciation on the home. Hmm. And again, it's all projections because who knows how fast or slow the home is going to appreciate or, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We couldn't have predicted COVID. But that was another thing that really inspired me and like encouraged me is that like everybody's guessing all these analysts, their projections will be way, way off. And I'll be like, oh, they went to Wharton and they were still wrong. Like, (laughs) they're totally. There's so many that are wrong. By the way, it's really hard to beat the market. You know, a lot of people have great publicists and say that they do, but it's really hard to beat the market. And by the way, the most important days in any investment are the days you buy and the day you sell, right? And that's with real estate too. So like your house is only going to be as valuable as somebody is going to pay for that ultimately. And so you can make all those projections too. But yes, the stock market over time, Inflation adjusted will yield 7% and then you don't have to deal with folks heating oil. Yes, yes. So, you know, I still have a lot to learn, but I feel like now at least I have kind of a knowledge base to be able to absorb more because before, like I didn't even know what a reasonable return was. Like, I don't know what I would have guessed you would get in the stock market, like 20% year over year. Like I probably thought that. So I just have a lot more information to then make smart decisions. And by the way, that's the best way to, you know, teach your kids financial literacy. They watch you. Yes. Yes. And I try to build those lessons into everything. Like we were at the store and my daughter wanted something. She wanted to buy it. And I said, okay, but if I buy it for you, it's going to be considered a a loan and you'll have to repay me with interest. So you can wait until we come back next time and you can bring your own money or I can buy it for you now. And she was like, well, how much is the interest going to be? I was like, oh, it'll be like a dollar over the next week. And she decided to wait. She was like, no, I'll just bring my money when we come back. So I'm trying to like, I'm not being stingy. I'm just trying to like build these lessons so she understands the idea of interest. If you borrow money, it's going to cost you something. And then she did it with her brother. He wanted something and she was like, well, I can give it to you, but you're going to have to pay me interest. (laughs) I love this. I love that so much. Does she get allowance? So we are now starting to get to the point where we're contemplating paying her for certain things. I don't love the idea of paying kids for things I should do anyway, mm-hmm. but I do really want to teach her about money. So wages seems like a good way to start. Do you let her negotiate it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, she. Okay. Good. I had a tweet that went viral. She was about seven years old. She said, I want the tooth fairy to pay me $100 for this tooth because I really like this tooth. So she negotiated <laughs> with the tooth fairy because she was had this like bond with this particular tooth. 
So we did negotiate. We, I hope she was wow. this. The tooth fairy negotiated with her for a couple of nights back and forth. And she got more than she would have if she had negotiated. She got like six fifty for that tooth. The going rate for teeth is like $2. Oh my God. I didn't <laughs> see that. That's amazing. I did see something else on your socials that I wanted to ask you about uh, a little while ago, your hesitation around taking opportunities in the beauty space. You said mm -hmm. that you were afraid about doing a beauty deal because it might affect your journalistic credibility. You said, quote, never mind that I had spent 10 plus years in the field covering everything from riots to wars to elections. I feel like the world only gives you space for one box. But regardless, you didn't let the world put you in that one box and you've been taking these amazing opportunities in the beauty space. I love your videos. I love your content. I watched till the end. You are Thank stunning. You. <laughs> you do stunning work. Can you please tell me a little bit more, though, about that moment that you gave yourself permission to be more than one thing? You know, it really has been against like stubbornness because I know that my career has suffered to some degree because of my insistence on always having this, like my hand in the beauty space in some way, whether it's a podcast or because it does affect your credibility. That's a commentary on society. It shouldn't be that way, but people think that pretty girls can't be smart. Smart girls can't be pretty. If you're interested in makeup, you're shallow. There are a lot of these ideas around that space. So I've had to hold on to that for purely self-preservation. Like this is my joy. This is the thing that lights me up. This is what I would be doing if I could do whatever I wanted to do on a day. If I had an empty day, a free day, I would go shopping for makeup and then I would come home and play with it. Like it's the thing in the world that makes me happiest. So I have just been insistent on holding on to my joy. And that's really all. It's been about me. <laughs> I wish yes. I had some like grander answer, but I wasn't going to let it go. I love that. Hold on to that joy. Yeah. It's priceless. Joy is so key to just being a whole human. All right, money superstars. So we end each episode with a money tip listeners can take straight to the bank. Now that you are a pro. <laughs> Hardly. I'm still a beginner level, but you are my financial godmother. So I thank you for the lessons you've given me. <laughs> Anytime. And now if you could please pay it forward, what piece of money advice would you give some of our listeners today that they could take straight to the bank if maybe they're a few steps behind you? I would say put everything on paper, every detail of every account. And don't be afraid, even as awful as it may look. I promise you, it was awful for me. It was so stressful. I would get like anxious about it before I knew I was about to do our finances, but there's no other way. The only way out is through. So dig deep, find some courage, put it on paper and get to work. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for ringing the alarm, for sounding the bell, especially as it pertains to women for repeating the same thing a million times because we need to hear it a million times before we actually hear it. So just thank you for what you're doing. You're keeping it real. You're spreading the kind of knowledge that really matters to people. Money really matters. I love you. Thank you. Love you too. Thank y'all. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. 
Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.